3, 2, 1, roll Welcome back everybody to the Strategy Sprints podcast. I'm your host, Simon Severino, and my guest today is professor at Columbia Business School in New York, and she's the one of the world's leading experts on strategy. She is author of many books. Some of them are The End of Competitive Advantage, Discovery Driven Growth. I love them all. Seeing Around Corners, which is so relevant right now. And she developed the Discovery Driven Planning Method, which became part of the foundations of the lean startup movement that became a worldwide movement. Now, she's enjoying the one year anniversary of Seeing Around Corners and taking her Columbia Executive Education classes virtual. Welcome everybody, Rita McGrath. A pleasure to be here, thank you. So cool to have you here. And you brought some cool topics. We will discuss eight specific practices that let you get out of to the edges to see where inflection points are forming, what leadership that can manage through an inflection point looks like, and why you need to stop thinking in terms of industries and start thinking about arenas. But first, Rita, everybody knows you, but what are you currently creating? Uh, currently, I'm working on a strategy textbook, of all things, um, because a lot of our thinking about strategy is a little dated. Um, and, uh, and then uh, doing some teaching at Columbia and trying to get this tools company I've been working on for a while off the ground. So it's keeping me pretty busy. Wow. And does it mean that the public will, will have access to your courses or some some people? Uh, well, some of the some of the things that I do are free. Um, so I do a weekly Friday fireside chat uh, with interesting, inspiring people, and uh, and that's absolutely free. You can go onto my website and log on. I do a monthly newsletter that uh, people can can subscribe to. Again, that's free. Uh, the Columbia courses they do charge for them because they have to pay the bills, but <laughs> but some of the other things are inexpensive. The other thing at a reasonable price point is an online course that um, goes under the nickname of Time for Learning, and it's sponsored by Time uh, Inc. All right, eight specific practices so that we can see something happening before it happens. Yeah. Well, so here's the interesting thing about strategic inflection points, and I should probably define those first. Um, so a strategic inflection point is some outside pressure that exerts a 10x force on your business. So that could be technology, it could be regulation, it could be social change, but it, it changes something fundamental about your business. And one of the things that inspired me to write the book, Seeing Around Corners, is this notion that inflection points feel as though they happened immediately. You know, at the point of impact, you feel, oh my God, this is just crazy. Um, but if you really go back and look, they've been underway for a long time. And yet the weak signals that inflection point is coming don't sort of package themselves up and present themselves at your corporate boardroom right there. They happen out at the edges. And this was inspired by Andy Grove, who said, if you want to know where spring is making itself felt, you must go to the periphery because that's where the snow is most exposed. So the whole concept here is snow melts, but it melts from the edges. 
And so some practices that you can use to really get out to the edges are, um, the first one is, are you personally exposed to what's going on you know, out there? And it's very easy for senior leaders to become isolated. They don't have these direct flows of information and communication. Um, secondly, are you are you using and leveraging diverse points of view? And I don't mean diverse in the politically consent, correct sense. What I mean is diverse in different experiences, different backgrounds. You know, if you're all if you're all from finance and you're all working on a program and you've all gone to the same universities, and you mean you're going to have a very homogenous point of view. And what you want is more diverse perspectives uh, focused on that. Um, third, are you are you encouraging um, autonomous action by teams? You know, teams right at the edges. Say, are you letting information and decision rights go to where people are most exposed to the phenomenon? Uh, then you have the question of fostering little bets. You know, how do you get people who are at the edges to be able to take an experiment? Um, and a great example of this is a program called the Adobe Kickbox program, where it's a red box and inside are instructions and a candy bar and a Starbucks card, but also a thousand dollar gift card. And you can try anything that's an experiment or a trial uh, with that. Um, you need to be able to get past denial. So uh, my favorite example of this is Alan Mulally at Ford, who upon discovering that Ford was gonna lose $17 billion, <laughs> convened a big meeting of all of his people and, uh, and they coded their performances all perfect. It was all green. <laughs> and he looked at them and he said, you know, you can't manage a secret. This is ridiculous, right? Um, then we have the getting out of the building, making, making the time to literally or in, COVID days, maybe not so literally, but to get out of the building and see what's really going on. You have to have incentives for speaking honestly. So psychological safety is hugely important, the ability to talk about uh, you know, uncomfortable things. And finally, um, as uh, science fiction writer William Gibson said, you know, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. So how do you go and visit places where the future is popping up and making itself felt, even if it's not an everyday thing yet? Beautiful. And now I'm curious who you nominate for the Strategy Award. Let's go there. You can only pick one person when everybody thinks this person is zagging, but they are doing the right thing from your okay. All right, so my, my candidate is Safi Bakal, uh, the author of the recent book, Loonshots. Um, and he's talking about a distinction between moonshots, which are big, well-funded, popular ideas, and what he calls loonshots, which are often dismissed, disregarded, uh, not popular. And they often um, don't look like much when they get started, but things like um, creating really pure crystals, right? Who would, who would think that was a big deal? But that created the potential for transistors and that created the potential for the digital life we're all having now. Uh, so these things start out seemingly you know, disregarded, insignificant, not paid attention to. But he traces how they then go on to change, change the world. Wow. Loon shots. Loon shots. Mm -hmm. Great. And now how we know that what what an inflection point is, and we know that we, we have to go to the periphery to see the weak signals because they happen there first. And how does now a leadership team look like that is capable of acting upon it? 
I think um, the, the phrase that I'm currently very fond of is something that David Cody, who was just stepped down as the CEO of Honeywell said, he said, you know, I don't have to have all the information when I come to the meeting, but I have to have all the information when we're done with the meeting. So uh, the idea being that the kind of leader that you want in a very uncertain situation is someone who is very, as I say, discovery driven. So someone who's endlessly curious, looking for the answers. And what another thing Cody does, which I think is fabulous, is um, at the end of a meeting, he'll always ask the most junior person there, what did you think? What, what do you think of this direction? And of course, the person's panicked. They're looking to their boss. He's like, no, 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 I'll come to you. But I, I want to know what you think first. Um, that kind of leadership where you're really getting opinions and truth from people is so important today. Absolutely. I will come back to the third point after thanking the sponsors. Hey, if you like the tools, go grab them for free at strategysprints.com slash tools. What are some of some books that touched you recently professionally? Oh, gee, there's a lot. Um, <laughs> since I've been, you know, grounded, <laughs> getting to do a lot of reading. Uh, I love Amy Edmondson's uh, The Fearless Organization. I think that is a super wonderful book. Uh, Loon Shots, I mentioned. Uh, Gary Hamill has a new book out called Humanocracy, which is dedicated to freeing up people's natural abilities to contribute and getting rid of some of the um, bureaucracy that's around you. For career types, I really like uh, Shelley Archambault's Unapologetically Ambitious. That, that's really good. David Cody has a new book uh, and it's called Winning Now, Winning Later. And it's about how we navigate this tension between uh, you know, winning in the short term versus the long term. And his argument is real leadership is about being able to do both. And he makes a great point, which is that um, you know, in any uh, business situation, we've always got things that seem to be in opposition. So you can have growth or you can have high margins. Um, you can have great inventory management or you can have great customer service. And what he talks about is real leadership is figuring out how to make both of those things true. Wow. And some books that touched you on, on a more personal level? Oh, um, hmm. <laughs> well, I'm a huge fan of the Colette books uh, from uh, the French writer who was one of the early sort of describers of feminism and what women could be in the world. Um, th those, are, those are very much part of what I was reading when I was growing up. Beautiful. How did you... Did you see the pandemic coming in February, in March? Well, I don't think anybody predicted precisely when it would come. But if you look, if you look, um, I mean, the United States had a full out pandemic preparedness system in place, uh, which was dismantled in 2017. In 2015, Bill Gates gave a very famous TED talk on you know what we should be doing now. And he likened it to preparing for a military, right? So the military knows that you don't you know, you don't start to mobilize when the threat is on your doorstep, you have to be ready. And that's the point that Gates made about the pandemic. He said, you know, once it's upon you, it's going to be too late to really respond effectively. Um, so I didn't see the precise pandemic coming, but certainly the idea that something would happen that had an impact of this sort, uh, people have been predicting that for a long time. And how did you, uh, do, do you have a big team or a lean team? How do you run your business and how did you react to, to the, this? 
Well, I think the first thing is you need to make sure everybody's okay, right? Uh, and that they're safe and that they're in a place where they can operate from safety. I mean, I think that's where you have to begin. Um, so I really have two teams. So one is the team that I work with that does my private business. So that's speaking, consulting, writing, that kind of thing. And then the other team is my team at Columbia. So at Columbia, we uh, they made the decision to take all of our classes virtual. Um, so we took our whole executive education program and pivoted it within a very short period of time. My, my course was one of the very first to be offered in an all virtual live format. Um, and then personally, my team's fairly small and, and kind of distributed. So it was really just making sure everybody was able to function with the technology that they needed and, the, you know, the, 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 the right tools to be effective uh, in, in a remote working kind of way. And now that the stages are, are, are gone, how do you plan for transition to these new stages that are emerging? Yeah. So what's fascinating to me is the inquiries I'm getting are a lot less about, oh, come and talk about your book, you know, which was the typical thing that would have happened before. And now it's much more help me make sense of this help me design my strategy, help me really think about, you know, how do I think about getting out of this uncertain situation? And in a way, um, this is a great program for this because I believe that the tools of innovation and entrepreneurship, which have always lived in very high uncertainty situations, are the tools that we need now. And the reality is very few people have actually been exposed to them. So there's a lot of demand right now for teach me these techniques to help me understand this, help me think about what my strategy should be, you know, a lot of uh, interest about that. And it's all happening virtually. Why should we stop thinking in industries and instead think of arenas? So the concept of industry is a really interesting one because so many people let it frame the way that they look at the world. And we forget we made this up, right? We make up the fact that there's a journalism industry or an academic industry or an aerospace industry. Um, and what we see now is that industry boundaries are getting very blurry. Um, oh, the other thing about industries is thinking about strategy analysis in terms of industries means by definition, the firms exist, the transactions exist, the people doing the transacting exist, the business models exist. In other words, you're leaving out that whole period before an industry that we could call an industry comes into being. Um, and so you're leaving out an enormously important part of the whole process. So that's the first, I think, challenge. The second challenge is any business, any in industry uh, forms at a particular point in history. And certain things are possible and certain things are not. And what an inflection point does is it changes that equilibrium. It changes what's possible. And if you're so deeply steeped in this blinders that an industry creates for you, it's entirely possible to miss these big changes completely until it's too late. And so a poster child at the moment would be traditional apparel, you know, um, clothing made for the masses. Um, and what we're seeing now is with the advent of a pandemic and the kind of <laughs> the challenge that we've all got where nobody's going anywhere, right? Um, and yet the apparel people didn't really think seriously about that challenge until it was really forced on them. Absolutely. And this is so important because some innovations do not come from the place you expect it. So vertical farming was not invented by architects. And, um, it, and also many of my friends who know that I am invested in Tesla, they all, whatever, whenever an execution problem in Tesla comes up, they say, oh, see, Simon, we told you. And I'm like, 
I, I am not betting at Tesla winning the car manufacturing game because I don't think this that's the game they're playing. It, it, it's one of their transitional components for now, but the game is the transition from fossil fuel to the new energy world. So it will be smart grids. It will be other stuff that I'm betting on right now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so some, some companies, you, you cannot even say in which industry they are. In yeah. which industry is Apple? I beg your pardon? In which industry is Apple, for example? Right, exactly. I mean, they're in payments, they're in personal technology, they're in products. So, yeah, I think it's uh, very, very interesting. The other interesting um, thing that I think is happening in strategy is that value is really moving from the product, you know, the features of a product, to the quality of the interactions you have with that product. And so Tesla is a great example of this, which is... Sure, the car is a thing, right? But the fact that the car is connected, can communicate, it can capture information, it can share information, it can provide information about many, many things. Uh, that's where the real value is going to be, not in the metal and the wheels and that stuff. Exactly. And of course, now I'm curious, what what are you investing in? If you want to disclose, what, what did you learn about that field in, in the recent uh, shifts? Well, I actually don't do um, investing on my own. Um, and the reason is that, you know, I work with so many companies. I've got so many possible conflicts of interest. It's just easier to put a wall between me and the specific choices. Um, but what I look for when I'm thinking of companies that are going to do well, I look for option value. And what I mean by that is places where you can make a small investment that buys you the right but not the obligation to make a bigger investment later on when things are more uh, settled. So certainly things like the battery technology Tesla's working on, an organization like Dyson, uh, I'm you know super interested in. You know, they just they just stopped their electric car project because all of their competitors are now going into electric cars, and the problem is they're pricing them as though they're internal combustion engine cars, and that's that's sort of taking all the option value away. But now they're pivoting and going into healthcare, which is fascinating to me. Absolutely. And what did you recently change your mind about? Oh, um, that's an interesting one. I think the, the, the value of person to person versus remote, um, you know, thinking about what we've lost and um, in terms of, you know, and I was always of the school where you can do most of the things you need to do remotely. But really when it comes to innovation, when it comes to coming up with new ideas, um, I think we're seeing through this pandemic the the real value of being in person, you know, of, of being able to bounce ideas off each other and be there in physical form. I think it's made us appreciate how important that really is. I'm curious, what, what is it that makes the difference? Because you were so much uh, into, into the remote school. What is it that, that makes the difference? With human beings? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, um, I think the concept is really summed up very nicely by my friend Linda Hill, who's a professor at Harvard. And she says, you know, what, what you're trying to do in a creative enterprise anyway. Now, this is not maybe something that's more routine. But certainly if you're Netflix or you're Pixar or you're Disney or, you know, where, where what you're trying to do is creative work. Uh, she says what leaders need to do is tie together individual slices of genius into what she calls collective genius. 
And it's hard to do. So the way this was summed up to me was a, a friend of mine who's, um, she runs an incubator for a large um, insurance company. And she said, you know, in the past, in, in the before times, we were all together and we were working together. Um, she said, and now every time we have to connect, it's a meeting. And I thought that was so interesting, the way she put that, because, you know, a meeting is much more effortful. It requires planning. You have to block time on your calendar, blah, blah, blah. Whereas if you're just around each other, you know, that those kinds of information flows and, and, you know, how are you feeling today? And what it's much more of a connection, right? Whereas if it's a meeting, it's much more formal. Speaking of meetings, what have you found out recently to make meetings more fun, more crisp in your in your context? Oh, I think I think having some fun with it is really important. So a great book I can recommend is while we're on books is a book that's coming out in the US. It's out in Europe. It's called Humor, comma, seriously. It's by Jennifer Aker and Naomi Bagdonis. And they talk about using humor as a way of people, getting people to relax. It releases all kinds of great hormones. It produces trust. And in the book, they go through a whole litany of, of ways that you can bring humor and bring levity and bring humanity into your life, <laughs> which is really, really wonderful. I can't recommend that book enough. It's great. Humor, seriously. Uh -huh. Wonderful. Uh, such a long list from you. And, and you have brought in in books that were not mentioned 10 times already on the show. So you are really bringing in a lot of fresh, fresh thinking here. Good. That's great. What, what is it that I, I forget? I forgot to ask you. That you forgot to ask me? Oh, <laughs> we have a long list of topics we could talk about. Um, I do think one of the more interesting aspects of strategy right now is really brought about by digital and how the fact that we can now connect. You know, if you think about digital, right, it sort of started in marketing, like everybody had to have a web page, and that was as far as it got. And then, then it got into products. You know, you can't buy a hammer now without looking at the Amazon review that said, oh, you know, I left it out in the sun and the plastic handle melted, don't buy this hammer. You know, who knew? And now we're seeing digital in business models. And that's where it starts to have a really big strategic impact because things are possible that were never possible before. You know, if you think of something like Dollar Shave Club in, in shaving, right? I mean, if you wanted to get a video message to hundreds of millions of people, even 30 years ago, you'd have to own a you know, production company. You'd have to own a film studio. Today, two guys in a garage with a medium-priced smartphone can do that. And that is just a dramatic sea change in what's possible and what's not. Absolutely. And um, what is it that around you uh, CEOs have right now to solve first? If you would say, hey, people, check first this before of all the things that needs that need attention right now please take care of this yeah and um safi makes a great point of uh, this safi bakal who i mentioned earlier he says you know we spend all this time talking about culture but when we talk about culture what we're actually needing to do is think more about structure and specifically things like the design of incentives. Because what happens in organizations as they get larger is people get incentivized around 
more hierarchical position and, you know, more power and more decision rights and da da da. But if you structure it so that your incentives don't reward that, your incentives reward instead more um, holistic, uh, more innovative behavior, uh, then that's what you're likely to get. So I would say, you know, one thing to definitely look at is what are the structures you're creating and what are the incentives that those structures are leading to? And then a second one, if I could do a second one, is um, I spend a lot of time with companies trying to help them understand their portfolios. So how do you invest in today's business? How do you think about the near field? And then how do you make sure you've got enough options for the future that when the future becomes the present, you're well positioned for it? So that's a big task. So cool. Rita, who should be my next guest? Oh, so somebody in sort of strategy, innovation kind of things? I think an interesting person for you to invite would be Eric Joachimsthaler. He's, he's the CEO of a company called Vivaldi in New York. And he's got a great book about this new thing in strategy called the interaction field. I think he would make a really stimulating person for your viewers to hear from. Wonderful. And since right now many small businesses, medium-sized businesses are thinking, oh my God, second lockdown, should I just wait for it to be over and then comes new normal? Or would you say, hey, there is no normal people, uh, this is going to take longer, so shift accordingly? Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be with us for a long time. Um, I mean, if you look at the numbers in the U.S., um, I mean, everybody was saying it was going to get worse in the fall. We're not even at curve. We're straight up right now. And uh, we're, we're way above the one-to-one -one, uh, transmission rate. And, of course, here, you know, we're looking at two big, events where people gather, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas, and people travel, people gather, and the spread now appears to be family gatherings. Um, so I, I I just don't see any way of that stopping. Um, now, I do think we'll start to see better control. I mean, we know a lot more about the disease than we did, but, you know, when it comes back to normal in business terms, it's probably a nine-month lag over when it comes back to safe in personal terms. Because don't forget, you know, your customers have to feel safe. I mean, even if there's no danger, people still have to feel safe. Yeah. And there is, you talked about psychological safety at the beginning, which is something that we, we have from time to time here as a topic, but I never really got how to do it. The, do you know how to really do it that your team feels psychologically safe to speak up, to be different? Well, how, in terms of structures that create yeah. culture, what can we do? Well, I think Amy Edmondson would be the the right person. Um, so there's a, informal and formal ways to do it. So let's talk about the formal way because that's the most easy. Um, Amy studied uh, medical errors in hospitals. And what she found out was that because hospitals are very hierarchical, you know, the surgeon is the god, right? And nobody has authority to say anything to him. So one of the things she did was, that she recommended was that she said, well, why don't we put the checklist so first of all, have a checklist, right? What are all the things that we need to make sure are proper before we begin a procedure? Put the nurse in charge of the checklist. So, you know, in terms of your own teams, right? You could ask, um, you could do what David Cody did and ask the most junior person at the end of the meeting. So what do you think? Uh, you can do what some people call the, um, what is it called? The normative decision, nominative decision making. So when you come into a meeting to discuss something, instead of everybody speaking, you stop and say, okay, everybody write down, like, like, let's say we pose a question, what's the best way to connect with our customers, let's say. And before you get into a conversation, have everybody write down their best idea. And then you just go around the table and without any evaluation, without any judgment, you let everybody speak. 
So this is something they do at Amazon a lot. They, um, they, they don't do PowerPoint. So they'll come into their meetings and they'll have a written word document, which says, um, you know, two pages to six pages describing an idea. And the first thing they do in the meeting is everybody sits down and reads the document. And so it's 20 minutes of silence while everybody reads what's written. And then you get to have the vigorous debate. But what's nice about that is then let's say someone's a little shyer or a little quieter or not normally given to contribute. But if it's their idea and they've written this document, everybody can read what they have to say without the spin, without the PowerPoint, without all that stuff. So those are some ideas. I like especially that everybody gets the same amount of attention to their thinking, but also it creates a calmness and a concentration level that in a team is sometimes missing because it can be exciting and all the power plays and all the show and hype and uh, all the uh, erotic of such a, such an, an, uh, a stage, right? And all these uh, roles there. And, but it's calm and it, when you write something down, you think so much clearly and it stays there. Yeah, and there's a lot of, of gump that gets masked by PowerPoint slides, honestly. It's just, you know, if you're forced though to write it down in a document, you have to actually spell out specifically what you mean. Exactly. Beautiful. Yeah, one thing uh, worth trying out. Let people before the meeting write down the main and, and what is what is this what is the the prompt? What do you ask? So write down your main assumptions or the current status or what we should do or all this. <laughs> It depends what you're trying to solve for, right? So if you're if you're in a new business, let's say, I mean, I've said this for a long time, what you want to do is document your assumptions because they turn into facts in our heads very quickly if we don't acknowledge and write down their assumptions. Um, so as an example, you know, you asked about small businesses, any small business that has the assumption that people are going to feel comfortable in the company of strangers, <laughs> you know, well, that's a huge uh, presumption that, that no longer holds. And so if that isn't true, what would you do with your business, right? And, and so I think starting from what are these foundational assumptions that we're making is a really good place to begin. I cannot state enough how important it is to write down the assumption. I think I, I cited, I, I quoted this from from you like 100 times in in, in 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 50 countries that it is so important to write down the assumptions and then to have a specific way of dealing with them can you give us one example sure so um i was working with an organization that was um exploring the premise that people who owned dogs specifically dogs not cats so much but specifically dogs had a concern about how their dog was feeling um when when they weren't around so you know back in the day when i went to work right how's my dog is my dog okay at home uh can i go out to the bar or should i rush home because my dog is feeling upset and and something like that and so one of the first things to test is are there enough people who really care about this <laughs> you know i mean to some people it's, it's a dog like really uh but to other people that you know it's a big important relationship in their lives so one of the things this group did was they made a short little cartoon and they put it on facebook and they saw what the reaction was and about half of the people who responded to this cartoon were like no not me no no way but the other half were like oh i would love it if i could have an app on my phone that would let me know what my dog's mood was or did it get enough exercise or whatever so that's an example of doing a small experiment that 
gives you information. Now, that doesn't commit you to going ahead and building this dog mood thing, but it, it gives you some information that suggests whether or not this is a fruitful path to go down or not. So what I recommend is uh, planning to these kind of checkpoints. And then you do what I call race, which is do you need to redirect? Do you need to accelerate? Maybe the opportunity has gotten even better. Do you need to just continue or do you need to exit? Do you need to stop this because it's not promising? So if the uniform response to the Facebook ad was, are you kidding? It's a dog. Um, then, you know, you probably should look elsewhere for something that would appeal to pet owners. Uh, there's a guy named Albert, Alberto Savoia, who might be another good guest for you. He's I a, love Alberto, yes. He's great. But he has a, in his book, he's got a tool that I just love. He calls it the skin in the game caliper. And he uses this to judge whether an idea is worth pursuing or not. And he says, you know, somebody says they like your product, zero points. <laughs> like, people will tell you anything, right? Somebody gives you a real email address and says, yeah, they, they would like to hear more. 10 points, maybe, you know, somebody, you know, grabs you by the throat, says, here's $5,000. How quickly can I get this? Yes, that's, that's your 100 points. <laughs> I love Alberto. We use it in our strategy sprints, in our one-to-one -one coachings with the teams, oh, yeah. them to fast experimentation every week, five experiments. And, um, and uh, he he's, has done such a tremendous job in bringing the math part, the numbers part into it, the X, Y, Z hypothesis. And also, uh, what I love about him is that he he helps if if it's a very big assumption, and sometimes teams get paralyzed. Oh, such a big assumption! We will need three years to validate that. Let's not touch it. And he has this wonderful way of well, then hyper zoom. You think the food industry will will take it? Well, test it in one shop in your city for 48 hours and then you will see if in percent you get the traction that then okay you can extrapolate that to the whole country and to the whole continent later but now 48 hours is what you need to test it beautiful, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. rita thank you so much for being here where can people of course people can read seeing around the corners discovery <laughs> growth and the end of competitive advantage. They are all wonderful. Um, so I have a website, readamagraph.com. Um, and that's where you can sign up for the newsletter. I've got archives of the newsletters. I've got a blog there. Um, so that's probably the most direct place you can go to find out more. Perfect. Are there any socials where you hang out more oh. than... Oh, I'm on Twitter, so it's at RG McGrath. I'm on LinkedIn, so feel free to look me up there. I just started playing around with Instagram, and I have a YouTube channel. And so on the YouTube channel are all my past fireside chats, which are interviews with really cool people, um, just very exciting people. And uh, they're all recorded, and you can um, access them there. I love it. And I know what I will be doing tonight. Great. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rita, for being here. Come back soon. Thank you. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. So long.